Well, I want to start with scripture today. I want to speak about narcissism, but the thing that we really need to know, I think, is God narcissistic? Because some people believe that God is narcissistic. And when we start using words like narcissism, and we love to use them, we essentially use them to judge other people, which actually can put us into the category of being narcissistic. It sort of draws us into the game. And so we want to use scripture as a basis for looking at God and, and hopefully looking at ourselves. Scripture is an excellent mirror. So we want to take a look at a very familiar passage to most of you. It's the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And as we look at this passage, I want to, I'm going to read the parable of the prodigal son. And many of you have heard it before, and so you sort of turn off. But I want you to look for a couple of things. Is there any evidence of narcissism in this story? And the second thing I want you to look for is, what about me? Where do I fit in this story? Before I start... I want to give a little bit of the backstory, some of the cultural context of this story. <coughs> when the younger son asks for his inheritance early, he's essentially saying to his father, you're no good to me. I wish you were dead. Just give me my stuff and let me get out of here <coughs> and get on to the real life. So we don't want to miss the offense there. The second thing is that when the son starts to come back to reunite with his family, the cultural context is that most everyone lived in a village. And so when you did something that was dishonorable to your family, it was also a dishonor to the village. And they all took it very personally. So if you ever tried to come back, they would make sure that you were met with a lot of shame. There's actually a ceremony that they would have that, that would shame you to tell you, people would line up to tell you that you're not welcome, that you are cut off from this village. So they would make sure that shame was heaped upon you as you entered the village. And the third point is that when we, when we see the father running, that in that cultural context, for a man of any means, or an adult male to run, was also seen as a disgrace. Because you had a long robe on, you essentially had to pick up this robe and show your legs as you would run, and what could possibly be more important than the way you looked. And with those three caveats, to keep in mind, I want to read this, this parable to you. And I want you to listen, hopefully, with some new ears. And he said, Jesus is speaking, starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. 
And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property among them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. <clears throat> and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house... He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours 
who devoured your property with prostitutes. When he returns, you've killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Powerful, beautiful, maybe even disturbing story that Jesus tells. And the more I look into the scriptures, especially some of these stories that I have heard before, and I'm tempted to say, yeah, yeah, I, I know what that says. We're listening to a story by the smartest man who has ever lived. We're listening to a genius tell us a story. Not a poor carpenter, maybe that too, but someone who has incredible wisdom. One of the things that I noticed this time through is the father doesn't argue with the son when he asks for his inheritance. Does that seem odd to anyone? No argument. Not, not a word. I mean, the father is clearly capable of entreating, pleading with someone, because we see him do that later in the story. But early in the story, we absolutely see no, no resistance. Why? Why not? Why, why don't we get resistance from the father? And maybe we can personalize this. When you take your resources and use them the way you want, aren't you free to do that? And I wonder if any of us has taken some of our resources, God-given resources, and have used them in a way that didn't glorify your father. Maybe in a way that you believed would give you pleasure. Ladies, how about your beauty? Have you ever used your beauty in a way that didn't glorify God but gave you pleasure? Men, have you ever used your youthful good looks to get what you wanted for yourself? Certainly didn't glorify God. And why does God not stop that? Why doesn't he argue with you? Why doesn't he restrict your choices to make sure that you make good choices. Free will. Well, here's the question. If you are restricted, and I can just point to myself, if someone says, here are the boundaries, I don't want you to go over these. This is the way David, I want you to use your intelligence, your title, the way people see you, your status. This is the way I'm insisting that you use it. You can get compliance that way, but you can't really get love. Somewhere in my mind, I would always believe 
it's probably better on the outside. But you're just lucky to have me, God, on your team. <laughs> it's sort of the way we think about our, our gifts. We think about them just like this young son. It's, it's mine. As soon as I can cash this out, I'm going to use this and take it to where the good stuff is. And I believe that we all have to be convinced that the good stuff is not found out there. It's found with the Father. And he is willing to take that risk, no matter how gifted you are, relationally, intellectually, physically gifted you are. He is willing to let you have free will and use those resources any way that you would like to say like he said to me, okay, hotshot, go burn it out. Do the best you can. Get what you can on the outside. Get as much glory as you can and see if that will fulfill the longing in your soul. Because what you really want is connection. What you really want is fulfillment. What you really want is intimacy. And so as we go out chasing these things, as the younger son does, and probably as most of us, if not all of us in this room have done, we need to learn that lesson. We need to learn when we come back, we need to learn a little humility, a little respect for our gifts, and even more respect for ourselves. He ended up in a pig pen, and I wonder if anyone in here has ended up in a proverbial pig pen because of the use of your gifts in a way that drew you away from the Father. I just want to pause for a moment. And <coughs> if there is something there that I have just touched on, there is a, a gift that God has given you and that you have never actually realized the damage that the use of your gift did to your relationship with your Father and you've never confessed it, and you've never even apologized to him for it, I'm just going to give you a minute now to do that. Because the reason that we're here is not to be entertained. It's to be transformed. And we want to be always looking at the scripture and then saying, I wonder if there's something in there for me. So I'm going to give you a minute right now. And just do some business with God. You can say, Father, I, I, I did use my gifts. And if I haven't apologized to you, I want to do that now. The things that I did and said and the way that I behaved did not honor you. I received some pleasure, some temporal pleasure, but it was very destructive to our relationship. And I'm going to own that and take responsibility for it and repent of that right now. I'll give you a minute. Now, one of the things that I want to also point out is how much offense the father is dealing with. He's got the offense of his younger son wishing he was dead. Basically, you're no use to me, just your money. He's got the offense of what the neighbors will say when your younger son sells a piece of the family generational property 
and takes off to a far country, and how the whispers about what kind of father you must be. He's got that offense. He's got the waiting and longing, thinking that his son may be dead. He doesn't know. Waiting for him to come back. He's got the offense of, of showing his legs running down the street after his son to protect him from what's coming as he comes through the village. He's got the offense of his older son. The number of offenses that often we don't think about when we think about our sins, but God, it hurts him. It hurts him just like it hurts you when someone you love disrespects you. But what we don't see with this father that we often see in ourselves is we see a lot of offense in ourselves when that happens. And we're actually not seeing any of that. Not a word of offense here. Not a word of how badly he's been waiting and how, how hurt he is that you would do such a thing. We, we're actually not seeing any of that. There's, there's something very strange about this father. And we want to be like him. As we move toward discussing the elder brother, let's look at his angle on things. It's very easy to look down your nose at the elder brother. He should be happy that his brother was back. But let's just be honest. Since the brother's been gone, his workload has increased, hasn't it? Working longer, working harder. Used to be two of them. Now there's just one. He's stuck with the responsibility of the family farm, of the fields. When, when someone in your family does something that is disrespectful or disgraceful, do you suffer? Yeah. I know there are people listening to me that can say, yes, you know what that feels like. When someone in your family has acted disgracefully, disrespectfully, has done something that brings a lot of shame, you feel it. So this older brother has been suffering. Let's not miss that. Because we want to be giving appropriate responsibility and appropriate grace in all of our decisions. It's so easy to be on one side or the other until you hear both sides. If we're looking for some narcissistic qualities in the older brother, we might look for qualities or features, we'll call them, such as, does he sound entitled? Does he sound envious, arrogant, maybe even something we'll call magical thinking? Is he embellishing any of the facts? Well, in fact, we don't know that the younger brother squandered his money on prostitutes. That the older brother has assumed and has assigned to him, but it's possible. We, we actually don't know that. But he knows. He knows exactly what has happened. And narcissistic people also will track your failures. They love to track your failures because it helps them strengthen their case. 
in the older son's speech to the father, <clears throat> there's a couple of things that he's saying. And they can all be categorized under one umbrella. And that is, Father, you have a distorted or twisted view of reality. You, Father, have a twisted view. I, however, have a very clear view. And I need to help you with your view. You have a twisted view about me and my importance. A twisted view of your younger son. A twisted view of your resources and how they should be used. And even a twisted view of yourself, when you should be offended and when you should celebrate. You've got that wrong. Let me help you with that. Basically, he says, first about, you've got a distorted view of me. By the way, iniquity in the Hebrew, that word means a twisting. So when we are caught, there's sin, transgression, and iniquity, three Hebrew words we all categorize under the category of sin. But iniquity is a twisting. And if you grew up in a family that has narcissistic parents, one or the other or both, you grew up in a family that had a lot of sin surrounding you, you probably grew up in an environment that allowed you to have a twisted view of life. It's called iniquity. You probably couldn't help it. Most of us can't help at least absorbing this iniquitous, this twisted view of the way that life works the way it should go, what people are supposed to do, what's good behavior and what's poor behavior. I've served you for years, he says, but you haven't noticed. I never disobeyed your commands, but you have never rewarded me. He's accusing his father of a distorted value system. I need attention. I'm the most important one here. It's important that you reward me for what I've done. He's also saying that you're celebrating my younger brother's behavior. Father points out to him he's actually not celebrating. He says it's fitting to celebrate your brother, your brother, was dead and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. I'm not celebrating his behavior. I'm celebrating his value and his value to me. You see, God's value system is weighted very strongly toward relationships and much more lightly toward resources. And throughout the scriptures, we keep getting this. It's, it's very difficult to receive it because our culture is not that way. Our culture is very similar to what he's describing here. You have just lost a third of your property. Remember, the older son the, got a double portion, and the younger son got a single portion. So two-thirds went to the older brother, one-third went to the younger. This father just lost a third of his property. It's gone. It has been squandered. He, 
What's probably worse is that in this Jewish family that this younger son has lost it to the Gentiles. There's a lot of layers here of offense. And the father is saying, people are worth more than problems. People are worth more than problems. Money and property acquisition, they will often reveal the heart. They will reveal the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, how we use our time and how we use our resources, our money. You can tell a lot about per a person, by the way, if you look at their calendar, their day timer, and you look at their checkbook or their account balance, where they spend their time and where you spend your money tells a lot about who you are and what you value. The younger son wants a party thrown for him. I'm sorry, the, the elder son wants a party thrown. That would be his reward, what he would like as a reward. What you like, what you would like as a reward actually says a lot about your value system. What do you do? How, how do you reward yourself when you've done something good? Something that you're proud of. Is it a movie? Chocolate? Donuts? Ice cream? What, what, is, what is your reward system? What, I mean, what is, why do people have parties typically? Who's, who benefits from the party? Well, theoretically, you have, everyone's going to benefit. But Jesus actually speaks to this party atmosphere. In Luke chapter 14, he, um, he talks about why people invite others to their party. So you can get invited to their party. It's for influence. It's for respect. It's for look at me and my house. Look at what I have done. And parties typically, well, the host is, for those of us who throw parties, you want things in good shape so that you look good. It's part of having a party. You don't want your house in shambles. and You actually want to look good. Part of throwing a party is so that you will look good. And people will respect you. People maybe will like you. And perhaps your life will be more pleasant and things will go better for you in the future. The purpose... And who you invite to your party also shows your value system. And the son wants to invite his friends. Just like we like to invite our friends. He's actually not saying he wants to have a party with his father or invite his family. He, he wants to do something with his friends. I just want to pause for a moment and just to think about reward systems and how you reward yourself for your good behavior. 
Just take a moment, just make some mental notes of the things that you like to do when you're good, when you feel like you deserve a reward. What is it that you would say to the Father, Father, this is what I want you to do for me? We also don't have any evidence that the younger, or excuse me, the elder brother ever asked his father for, to throw him a party. He wants to be recognized. He wants something. He's been slaving away, it sounds like, without really resting, without enjoying his work. But what he really wants, he's accusing the father of keeping out of his reach. But we have no evidence that he ever asked the Father for that. And if there is something that you want, there is something that, a reward that you would like, I just want you to, to encourage you now to ask the Father for it. To say, Father, you know what I'd really like? I'd like a break. I'd like some rest. Uh, I'd like a day off. And then listen for his voice, and he may be saying, well, then take one. I've got your back. You can take a rest. You can take a nap. You can take a day off. You can take a Sabbath. What is it that you want? Do you want to have a party with your friends? It's okay. You are my son. You are my daughter. I want to celebrate you. I want you to feel special. Because that's what the older son keeps insinuating. Father, you're not treating me like I'm special. Which gets back into narcissism. We all want to be treated special. It's not a specifically narcissistic feature. But if you insist that you're treated special by everyone, it can get into a personality disorder. I just want you to take a moment right now and if there's something that you want that you haven't asked the Father for, I want you to, to move into that right now. Say, Father, I have I, never asked you for that. I've wanted this, but I haven't really asked you for it. Um, my life seems out of balance. I'm getting irritated at the circumstances around me. You may even ask him to suggest things that you need. I'm going to pause right now and let you do that. So the father responds very interestingly. He says something. He says, son, you're always with me. That is an interesting statement. You are always with me. It would be sort of like if my if my wife said to me, I'm missing my family, and I said, yeah, but you're always with me. <laughs> On a human point of view, it sounds a little arrogant. It actually sounds a little bit narcissistic. But it doesn't say, I'm always with you. He says, you're always with me. It actually could be considered a very selfish statement. 
unless you are the giver of all good things. If I said that to my wife, it would be insensitive. And we find in 1 Samuel that, in fact, when Elkanah actually makes a statement like that to Hannah, the mother of Samuel, when she wants a child, and you can take a look at that, he says, uh, you know, she wants a child, she's barren, and her very insensitive husband says to her, am I not of more value to, to you than ten sons? Yeah. Doesn't go over so well. <laughs> but in this case, we don't want to miss what he's saying. He's saying, have you not enjoyed, surely you've enjoyed all of these years with me. Surely there has been some benefit to you of being with me, so close to me. Well, apparently not. <laughs> and we see this theme in another of the parables. It's in, um, I believe it's in Matthew, where the vineyard owner goes out at 8 o'clock in the morning, and every three hours he goes to get workers for his vineyard, and he pays them all the same. Very disturbing parable. But it's the same theme. What was the advantage of being there at 8 in the morning if it wasn't the economics? Because at the end, the, the owner says, take what is yours and go. If that's all you came for is the economic advantage, take what is yours and go. You didn't enjoy the whole day working in my vineyard. You didn't enjoy the whole day working with me. Jesus is always having us focus on the spiritual values and the material values, and they are very, very different. And if we miss that, life is not going to work out well for us. And Jesus wants to make sure that we don't miss it. You see, the reward is about being with the Father, but the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to had missed that. And in our self-righteousness, we miss it also. And what do I mean by self-righteousness? I've worked with people who are coming out of drug addiction, and I can tell you, after they have gone to church for the second time, they are suddenly very self-righteous. They memorize one Bible verse. Once they're on their second one, they're starting to look down at the people who are not doing as well as they are. This is human nature. This is me, and this is you. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Wherever we are, especially if we are doing anything with some discipline, very easy to look down on those that are not. There are a few things that are going to steal your joy faster than envy, comparison, and bitterness. Self-righteous pride. Many of us come to God and say, what do you mean being with you? I'm keeping the rules. You know, we're coming up on Easter season. And many of us realize Jesus died on the cross for us. But somewhere in our mind, we may not vocalize it, but we're thinking, yeah, but what has he done for me lately? 
this is the world we live in. What have you done for me lately? Well, that's great, but this is what I need. I've got pressing circumstances. Are you able to enjoy your Father? Are you able to enjoy your God? Are you able to spend the kind of time to, to look at a passage like this and say, Holy Spirit, would you show me some nuances that I haven't seen in this passage, something that would transform my life, something that would make me, here it is, make me more like you. Because what this Father is saying Son, you're, you're always with me. You are always with me. I really would wish you would enjoy that. I want you to appreciate it. You see, the, the older son is saying, Father, you're taking me for granted. I've been working for you. And guess what the father's saying? Son, you're taking me for granted. You're taking me for granted. Let's take a good look at ourselves. Are you taking your God, your Father, your Jesus for granted? So easy to do. Our culture loves to tell you it's just not that important. When it's, it is life. It is the only real life that there is. You see, new, new jobs, new relationships, that brings joy, brings the dopamine buzz that we love. But over time, those feelings fade, and it's the same with any relationship. Have you done anything new, anything fresh in your relationship with God? Or is it the same old pattern? Because whether it's a marriage or whether it's a relationship with God, the same old thing after a while gets sort of old for both of you. What freshness have you brought to your relationship with God? How about your singing? Have you, maybe you could start singing. My wife and I have been reading the scriptures to each other in the morning. Maybe this season would be a great one to read through some of the Gospels and start looking and discussing with your partner, what was he saying there? Why did he say that? What was he doing? What was he getting at? And looking at things with fresh eyes, something fresh in the relationship always helps your relationship. Singing some new songs. Instead of sitting with your Bible, you may need to go for a walk this week. Something new, something fresh, as if you are establishing, furthering, nurturing something that's very, very valuable to you because this person is very valuable to you. Now, God is a person that you can't see. That is neurologically difficult for most of us. And I think in the church we often just do some hand-waving over that like it's no big deal. Your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with God. I can tell you for me and for most everyone else, the way your neurology works is that if I can see you and I can see the expression on your face, I want to react with you, I want to interact with you 
in a priority over someone I can't see. Right? There's more dopamine I get from interacting with someone I can see their eyes and their face and their smile than for someone that I can't. Now we tried to change that with our texting, those emojis and things like that. We try to put something in there to try to get some of that. I wonder if you can sense, if you're sensitive enough, if you can develop the discipline of sensing what God is feeling, what he is thinking. This elder brother totally missed what his father was thinking. He totally missed it because he had a certain frame of mind that was twisted. And he thought that his father was twisted. But ultimately, his father was totally at peace, was celebrating something. Now, he, the father didn't say there were no consequences for squandering a third of your inheritance. That never came up in their conversation. There are consequences to our poor decisions. Make no mistake. But shaming people that have made poor decisions is also not healthy for you or for me or for our relationship with them or relationship with God. The last thing he says, he says, all, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. That is amazing. In fact, in this story, it was true because two-thirds of the inheritance was given to the elder brother. Everything the father had now was his. All that I have is yours. At this point, I concluded the lecture and began an imagination exercise to experience what it might have been like to be the elder brother. This imagination journey is available on the website or the app under the heading Imagination Journeys and the title The Elder Brother Comes Home.